Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church. Here at FBC, it's our mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and we hope that this message helps you continue to grow in your faith. This audio is property of First Baptist Church, but feel free to give away copies of this message in the hopes that others will be impacted by what they hear. For more information about FBC, or if you want to stay connected with us, visit our website at fbclloyd.ca or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. Good morning, everybody. I just took the microphone off mute, as you noticed, and you'll be very thankful for that because you didn't have to hear me sing. Um, One of the things I noticed coming here early this morning just to prepare for this is how much time and effort uh, goes into preparing for this service. I was here just shortly after 8.30, and it was just a hive of activity here. And um, I don't know if you realize it, but there's so much work, and I really, really appreciate it for myself, and I'm sure you guys too, so much the the effort, time and effort that Neil and the band puts in, and then the sound guys too, uh, Gary and Tim, and... uh, for you, Cedric, as well, uh, on video this morning, too. And I, I just appreciate all the stuff that happens in the background um, for this. Some of you may know who, who I am. My name is Barry Helm. I grew up in the church, and, um, and my, my parents are Norman Vicky. You probably know them, and they're very, very famous and very, very nice people. So I, <laughs> I love them dearly. I love them a lot. Um, but let's just, let's just bow in prayer. Father in heaven... I just pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Illuminate your word for us and guide our hearts with your Holy Spirit. Amen. I am passionate about the Bible. I love it. I, there was a point in time when, um, I don't know, I, I love the Bible. And I think a lot of that came for me out of uh, my Christian upbringing with my parents. Um, the Bible was a common part in our home and Sunday school and going to church on a regular basis. And I think uh, also Indiana Jones, the Indiana Jones movies. I just love Raiders of the Lost Ark. The one with a skull and the aliens, not so good. Don't watch those ones. But the other ones were great. The other thing that inspired me um, to love the Bible more were the, the Lord of the Rings books. It probably sounds odd, but Part of the reason is that just seeing this broad narrative uh, take place throughout Scripture, and it's like, wow, I didn't realize that this incident here uh, would speak to another part of the story later on. And it's as we look at Scripture um, that we see how all these dots and all these connections take place, and it's just fascinating. Everything, every time I go through the, the Bible, I see more and more of that. Today, I'm going to talk to you about courage. Courage is a very, very important thing. Um, to God, and it's something that He calls us for. I'm going to talk about um, the creation of the world. I'm going to take us through probably about two or 3,000 years of history, so saddle up. Um, I'm going to talk about um, Abraham. I'm going to talk about Joshua and Joseph, going back. So Abraham, Joseph, jo- Joshua. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, King David and uh, Saul, and then two prophets, Elisha and Isaiah, and that will, will take us through. So there's a lot of names on that list. So some of you may be familiar with these stories that we're going to talk. There's a lot of Bible reading. Um, maybe just look at this. Do you guys binge, binge watch on Netflix sometimes? Wife, Bethany, binge watch? Yes, okay. 
I'm sure that you binge watch. This is kind of like a Bible binge watch type of thing that we're going to be going through a lot. Um, so what I'm going to do is um, there are several places in the Bible that cause, call us to be courageous. Several verses. John 14, uh, 4, 26 says, Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. That's Jesus speaking. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Stay alert, stand firm in the faith, show courage, and be strong. And then Philippians 4, 6, again, Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything. I came across this verse in Revelation. Revelation was written uh, by John, the Apostle John. And this is uh, basically a warning. Uh, it says, Those who are victorious, and it's talking about the king, coming kingdom of God, those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Look at that first one, cowardly. Cowardly. So often I'm a coward. I wonder if you are too. And yet that's the first thing in that list. Courage is something that God requires of his people. In fact, he commands it. And it's more than just a personal characteristic or a general attribute that we should pursue. This courage is a courage that is rooted and established in who God is, in what he has done, and in the promises he has given us. Courage comes from our perspective, our position, a posture that we take when we encounter the world around us. In fact, courage is acting in accordance with the will of God, despite our circumstances. So that's what we'll talk about today. So as I said, I want to go first. I think the main, main part of the story is going to be about the, the nation of Israel. They are about to enter into the promised land, and we find the story in Numbers 13 and 14. But I want to take a step back a little bit and give you a bit of a background. And uh, so we see uh, in the beginning, Genesis, you'll, you'll know this passage. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created all that there was, all that we see, the stars, the earth, dry land, water, fish, birds, and humans. It says that God formed, uh, created mankind. The Lord formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. He gave humans the, the role, the responsibility to take care of the planet, to fill it, to multiply, and to be essentially gardeners of this beautiful creation. He gave them one command. And this command was, do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day that you eat it, you will surely die. And I think we all know what happens. Even Adam ate of that fruit. And we bear the consequences. All of us do. We all die. So stained by their disobedience, their sin, the first several chapters of, of, uh, of Genesis reveal how humankind was inclined to evil. We read stories of murder, of vengeance, of anger, of greed, of idolatry, of godless pursuits, of arrogance, and of pride. And we can see this pride in uh, one of the stories, again, you may be familiar with this, about the Tower of Babel. And this is in Genesis 11, 1 to 4. 
It says, now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved, east, moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar instead of mortar. So this was a new technology for humanity at the time. Before, they had just built with stone, and now they had discovered this technology to use clay and uh, brick mortar. So with this new technology, they, then they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the earth. So what happens in this story is that humanity they were essentially afraid of being scattered. They thought they were as good as the gods at that time, that part of the world. They wanted to build these towers so that they could ascend to the position of God, to be as gods, to take care of that. But God, uh, in order to protect humanity, we read later on in Genesis, that he confused their language, and then humanity was scattered throughout the earth. It's interesting as you go through Genesis that the next story that takes place is a story about a man named Abram. Abram, his name was changed to Abraham later on. Abram means uh, mighty father. Abraham, which his name was changed to, means father of many. God tells Abraham, leave the land of your forefathers, the land of Ur, which is far east in present-day Iraq. It says, leave, and this all would have been right around 2000 BC, just in case you wondered. Uh, he says, leave the land of your fathers, leave your gods, leave your families, leave your country, and go to this new land. And if you do, I'm going to make this promise to you. And we find this promise in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham obeyed God, made the move from his, home, uh, his homeland to the land of Canaan. He took his family, well, not his father, but he took the rest of his family and started settling in the land of Canaan. And he, he dwelt there. He's a fairly wealthy man. He had uh, lots of flocks and whatnot. He was essentially a shepherd, a businessman there. And uh, he had several sons. Uh, well, he had one son. He had the son Isaac, and then Isaac has, has a son named Jacob. Jacob had several sons, one of whom was Joseph. Joseph was the favorite son. Are any of you here the favorite son or daughter in your family? Cousin Jason, of course you are. Alex, I see that. Keith, of course. Uh, were my younger brother here today, he would have his hand up. He would have the hand up as a, as a favorite son. So his brothers were so jealous of this favored son that they took him and uh, they beat him up, threw him a pit, into a pit, sold him to some slave traders. And they told their dad uh, that your son's dead. Joseph is dead. Sorry, dad. And eventually what his dad was crushed. Uh, what happens is Joseph ends up in Egypt, having been sold by slave traders, ends up in jail through no fault of his own. And then he winds up uh, through the hand and through the grace of God, and you can read this in Genesis, rising to second in command in the kingdom. He was Pharaoh's right hand. As it happens, uh, there was a famine in the land of Canaan. So right now, uh, Joseph is in Egypt, reigning with Pharaoh. There was a famine in the land of Canaan, and his family was all starving. There was a shortage of grain. So his family goes to Egypt, 
uh, because Egypt had these vast storehouses of grain. They were very prudent with their harvests. And then he was able, Joseph was able to provide sustenance for his family. His brothers didn't know at the time, but in time he revealed his identity to his, his brothers. Tears were shed. They made peace with one another. And his family uh, ended up, all his brothers and his dad, they ended up uh, living in Egypt. Yet, even while in Egypt, uh, they remembered the promise to their forefather, Abraham. It wasn't forgotten. We read this in Genesis 50, 22 to 26. So this is Joseph, just at the end of his life. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph bade the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. I wonder if that was a way of getting back at his brothers. Hey, brothers, when I die, I want you to carry my bones around with you. Carry them until we get out of this place, Egypt. Several generations take place. The family is still in Egypt. But then there arose uh, Pharaoh, a ruler, who did not look so kindly on the Israelites. We read in Exodus 1, 8 to 14. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labors, and they built Pithom and Rameses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In, in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. But we read in Exodus 3 how God chooses a man named Moses. And it's a very, very interesting story. Again, I don't have time to go uh, through this, through all of this. But in Exodus 3, we read how Moses uh, was appointed for a mission by God to, to redeem, to save the people out of Egypt. And so he, Moses is out shepherding his father-in-law's flocks. And it says, There an angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was, was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why does this bush not burn up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land into a land that is good and spacious, a land flowing with milk and honey. 
And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So we read in Moses, uh, in, the, in the book of Moses, yes, in, Genesis, in Exodus later on, how Moses, with his brother, somewhat reluctantly, go and confront Pharaoh and say to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go. Let the Israelites go. Pharaoh refuses. Even though God sent, through Moses, a number of plagues on the Israelites and on Moses, he sent plagues of blood, a river turning to blood, an infestation of frogs and of lice and flies, He sent diseases on their livestock, boils, hail, locusts, and darkness. But the bull-headed and intransigent Pharaoh refused to let the people go. There was one more more, uh, plague that God was going to send. And this is very, very important. So Moses said to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of the Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill and all the firstborn cattle as well. There will be a loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or will ever be again. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, Tell the home community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. All the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over fire, along with the bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. The Israelites did just what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne, the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was a loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up! Leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go! Get out of here! Worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and go and also bless me. So they went. Moses immediately got up and went and all the Israelites with them. So they uh, immediately left Egypt in the middle of the night in haste and they ended up uh, just west of the Nile River, uh, kind of in the wilderness country on the banks of the, uh, the Red Sea at that time. The next day, Pharaoh got thinking to himself with his, uh, some of his officials, and he realized that they had just lost their workforce, and their economy would suffer, their country would fall apart. We need to go. Let's send our horses. Let's send our chariots. Let's send uh, all these riders. Let's send our military. Let's go back and get those Israelites back. So we pick up the story in Exodus 14.10. 
So remember that the Israelites are, are trapped now between the armies of Pharaoh and the Red Sea. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see here today, will you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and it turned into dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud and at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. So Moses stretched his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back into its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. It's an incredible story, and it's a very important story. It's an important story to remember. For even as we go next week and celebrate what we call the Lord's Supper, that's a reminder of the Passover that Jesus had with his disciples. That Passover is talking about this story, about the Exodus. So anyways, after the Israel, uh, Israelites uh, get on the other side of the Red River, they journeyed for three months. They end up at a mountain, a, mount, a called, uh, mountain called Mount Sinai. And at this mountain... God presents himself to Moses, and he makes a covenant with the people. And in that covenant, God says to them, I will make you a great nation. You will be for me a nation that will be a nation of priests, a royal priesthood, to demonstrate who I am to the rest of the world. I will bring you into a good land. I'll give you a good land flowing with milk and honey, the land of Canaan. So at that point, at Mount Sinai, uh, the nation of Israel enter into this covenant with God. They receive the Ten Commandments, they receive the rules and the regulations, um, and they receive basically a moral code and a, a, a social ethic at that time. It is at that point in time, with that covenant, that those people become a nation. God's nation. God became their king. 
So again, it's very, very important uh, to uh, recognize these things. And this is a parenthetical comment because it's not really part of the message uh, necessarily. But as you go through and read Scripture and study the Bible, this is one of the key things, one of the key things that you need to remember um, going through that, this covenant that God made with his people. And we see later on how the people will fail in that. So this takes us to our story, uh, the story of of the 12 spies of Canaan, which I'm sure that some of you are familiar with. So they were at Mount Sinai. They hung out there for about two years, just living the dream, I guess, in the desert. Uh, God made provisions for them, giving them manna and water from a rock and quail. The people whined a lot, and it drove Moses nuts, and it angered God. But in two years' time, uh, God said, it's time to go. It's time to go take possession of the land, the promised land, the land of Canaan. So they traveled to the desert of Paran. The desert of Paran is uh, basically at the southern edge of what we would know as, as Israel, far south edge. And they were there, just on the doorstep of the promised land. So Moses, what he does is he appoints 12 representatives, a reconnaissance team, basically, one man from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, Israel was one of the sons of Jerusalem, Jacob. Ja- no, Jacob was Israel. So Jacob had his name changed to Israel. He had many sons, 12 sons, each of which represented a, a tribe or became a tribe. He, so one man from each tribe. So to represent and do this little spy mission, this reconnaissance message. I don't have this verse in the slides, but it's from Numbers 13, 17 to 20. Moses says to the people, this is your mission. Go up through the Negev and into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in, the not, in it or not? Oh yeah, and bring me some grapes. So the 12 men, one of whom was Joshua and another uh, was named Caleb. So the 10 and then Joshua and Caleb. Uh, went and they did a 40-day mission. And they traveled uh, through present, what, what we would call as present-day Israel, uh, all, the, all up along the coastal plain and then through the, the valleys and through some very fertile, all the way to the northern edge of the country. And then after 40 days, they return. And they bring back this report. We went into the land which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here's the fruit. But the people who live there are powerful. And the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. Anak was a a giant, a great man in that time. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the southern end. The Hittites, uh, Jebusites, and Amorites live in in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea along the Jordan. Then Caleb, you'll remember him, he is one of the twelve. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land. For we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They're stronger than us. They're stronger than we are. And they spread word among the Israelites, a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All their Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt, 
or in, the, in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes, and they said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we passed through and, and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people in that land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone. But the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. What's interesting in this story that uh, 12 of these men went in and did this reconnaissance mission. And it says that, that God was so angry that he wanted to wipe out the entire nation of Israel at that time and start a new nation uh, through Moses and his line. But Moses interceded. And God, God relented in his anger. He forgave the people. But he said to them, you guys, you're cowards. You're not going to inherit this land. You're going to die in the desert. For 40 years, you're going to wander. Your children will make it in. All those 20 years old and under, they'll make it in. Joshua and Caleb will make it in. But you guys are not going to. So... With the exception of Joshua and Caleb, every Israelite 20 years and older would end up dying in the desert, never to take hold of God's promise, an inheritance promised to Abraham. Understand this, they were on the edge, on the edge of entering the promised land, and they were barred from entering it because of their fear, because of their lack of courage. Do you think God thinks courage is important? Courage is a big deal to God. And all the 12, they would have seen the same things. They were a team. They would have saw the bounty of the land, the fruit of the land, how good it was, how productive it was. And all 12 would have seen the, the giants in the land. They would have seen the powerful nations, nations who had better technology than them, nations that were better advanced than they were. Yet, only two of them saw that God was with them. The other ten thought of themselves as mere insects. How do we see ourselves? How do you perceive your reality? How do you orient yourself to the world around you? Do you see promise and opportunity? Or do you see yourself as an, as an insect? Do you see giants? So then the question is, how, what should our perspective be? How do we reshape our perspective? How do we reorient ourselves? I think we can have a few answers, a few indications, if we look at the lives of two prophets, one of whom is Elisha and the other is Isaiah. But before we get to that, I think we need to do a little bit more background. And I'm going to rush through this a little bit because I took so long in the, 
the other sermon, so I'm going to bear with me here as I read a bit more quickly. So after 40 years wandering in the desert, Joshua now is leading the people. Moses is dead. Uh, Joshua is 80 years old at the time, and again, the second time, they are on the brink of entering into the land. Moses is 80 years old. Some of you think that you can retire at 55, 60, 65. Pardon me, not Moses, Joshua. Joshua is 80 years old. Joshua is beginning his ministry at 80 years old. Let that encourage you. So we read, uh, as, as Joshua's about to, to let the people into the land, lead the people into the land. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. So this is God talking to Joshua. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Does that sound familiar? Somewhere else that's, I read that. Listen to this. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful at wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written on it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you, Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So they made it into the land. Interestingly enough, they still have the bones of of, uh, their forefather, uh, Joseph with them at the time. And then at the end of his life, after they have taken the land, at the end of the book of Joshua, we find Joshua again giving a warning and a call to the people, which we find uh, in Joshua 24. And he's challenging the people now. Now that they have entered the land, the generation has gone by. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your ancestors. Worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day who you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our parents up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he's our God. Joshua said to the people, You're not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, No, we'll serve the Lord. 
Then Joshua said, you are my witnesses. You are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we're witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people. And there at Shechem, he reaffirmed for them the decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak tree near the holy place of the Lord. See, he said to the people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord has said unto us. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. Joshua dies at the age of about 110. And you can guess by the little bit of foreshadowing that happened there what happened next. Several generations pass, and we can read them in the book of Judges, how eventually the nation of Israel, they start giving up the land, they start reverting, start adopting the practices of the nations around them. Child sacrifice, idolatry, worshiping false gods, uh, just, you know, picking up all these false things. Eventually what happens, uh, and we can see this at the end of Joshua, Joshua 21, 25, this is kind of one of the main themes in, the, not Joshua, in the book of Judges. One of the main themes in the books of Judges. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone did what they wanted. So in time, the people said, you know what? All these nations around us, they've got kings. They're doing all right. Samuel, you're a good prophet. We want a king. We want to be like all the nations around us. Samuel tried to talk them out of it. And we read in uh, 1 Samuel 8, 19 to 20. It says, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. They had forgotten this bottom passage. This is something that Moses told them, commanded them several generations before. Moses said to them, Hear, Israel, when you go into battle against your enemies, do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not panic or be terrified with them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes before you to fight. He goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you victory. God gave in to what they wanted. Uh, a guy named Saul was anointed as the, the first king of Israel. It didn't take long for him to fail. He fell into sin. So God said, I'm going to choose a king for you. I'm going to choose this young shepherd man, a young boy named David. He's a man after my own heart, and he will be king. I'm going to appoint him as king over the Israel. And so David was very successful. He followed the Lord, and he was not a perfect man. He had many wives. How can you be perfect with that? Uh, and he committed adultery, and he was a murderer. And yet, for some reason, God chose him. He was a very... I, I hesitate to say it, but he was a man after God's own heart. It says that. God loved him, and he wanted to follow God. Years into David's reign, probably towards the end of the life, his life, uh, through the prophet Nathan, a covenant is made uh, with David as to what his future and the future line of the kings would be. 
Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I make your name like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over Israel. I will also subdue your enemies. I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are over and you go to be with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons. Again, he's talking to David here. I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him, as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. So I just want to interject here one more time into the stream of things. This is another covenant that God made in the Old Testament. And it is so important that we remember this because that's a theme that is carried again through the prophets, through the rest of the Old Testament into the life of Jesus. And I would say that we cannot understand the Gospels and the New Testament fully unless we understand this concept. So remember, remember the promise that God made to Abraham. Remember the covenant at Sinai. And remember this covenant to David as you do your Bible reading. So David was, was, according to the scriptures, the greatest king in Israel at the time. He united the kingdom. The kingdom was very successful. He expanded the, the, the land, the territory of Israel. They were a superpower, um, at, a small, albeit small superpower at that time. They sat beside, between the northern kingdoms and the southern kingdom of Egypt on a major trade route. They were wealthy. They had it going on. They were together. His son Solomon, David dies, his son Solomon uh, builds a temple for God. But we see shortly after the life of Solomon, after Solomon dies, that the kingdom comes apart. In fact, the next generation it does. There's civil war. It's split into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And there's infighting and there's murder and there's assassinations and there's child sacrifices and following other gods and disobedience and just not holding on to the covenant of God. And we see good kings come and bad kings come and just the nation following into a great state of decline. And during that time, God raises up prophets for his people, one of whom is uh, Elisha. And we're coming into the, to the, uh, the crux of the message now. So Elisha was... Um, he supported the northern kingdom. He was a prophet of the northern kingdom. He's, he, he was a, a patriot, a zealot for this nation, God's nation. He was appointed to give messages to the king, to support the people. And in that, through the course of that, um, we read how he created a lot of enemies, especially enemies with the neighbors of Israel who were enemies to Israel. They became, became enemies of Elisha as well. We read in, in 2 Kings chapter 6. Pay attention to this story here. This is very important. Now, the king of Aram was at war with Israel. Uh, the Aramean Empire was just to the northeast of Israel at the time, and they were 
doing nice, not nice things. Uh, now, the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. So they're putting pressure on the northern kingdom. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. So Elisha was giving inside information. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet, who is in Israel, he tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Go, find out where he is, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He's in Dothan. Then he sent his horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man, so Elisha's servant, when the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. They were about to take, take Elisha. He was afraid. Oh, no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Do not be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Listen to this. And Elisha said, he prayed, Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. What do you see when you feel you're surrounded by your enemies? What do you see when hardships come your way? Oh, that we would have the eyes of Elisha. There's another prophet, the prophet Isaiah. He comes uh, probably about 100 years after that. I'm going to read out of my Bible because it's interesting, but it'll be up on the screen too. And this is about Isaiah's commission. It's in Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. So Isaiah, this prophet, he would have lived in a time about 100 years after Elisha, and he would have seen the rise of the Assyrian Empire, one of the most efficient war machines at that period of time in about the, uh, the 9th century BC. And there's, you can go to the, the British Museum and you can see what some of the things that they did to their enemies. They were a brutal, merciless army. 
They were um, doing incursions into the northern, uh, they were coming from the north into northern Israel, putting pressure on. They were starting to do de deportations of the people, dragging them away with hooks in the jaws, literally. Their enemies, they would skin alive. They would behead people in front of their children, pluck out their eyes. Brutal regime. Very efficient. They ruled most of the known world at that time. Very, very powerful. Built up the city of Nineveh, which is in modern day, uh, close to Mosul. Don't go there. Don't go to Mosul. You'll probably get shot. It's terrible. That's in Iraq. Um, very dangerous. Anyways, I, I created the city of, of Nineveh. So you can imagine how Isaiah, uh, Isaiah must have felt. To see the neighboring kingdom, north, uh, the kingdom of Israel to the north, starting to fall apart. These powerful players in global politics, geopolitical uh, realm, Assyrians coming, putting pressure on them. Isaiah would have been there when the city of Lachish fell. This city of like, the fall of the city of Lachish is not only in the Old Testament, but you can read about it in some of the carvings recovered from the city of, of Nineveh, where Sennacherib is bragging about he took down and laid siege to the city of Lachish and uh, hauled their, their leaders off. Isaiah would have been there when the Assyrian forces would have gathered around the city of Jerusalem, Lachish was just a few miles away, and taunted uh, the king at the time, King Hezekiah at the time. And you can imagine how Isaiah would have felt when his friend, King Uzziah, another king, died. King Uzziah was actually one of the, the good kings in the southern kingdom, kingdom of Judah. His friend, Uzziah, died. In that year, King Uzziah died. The world was falling apart. Isaiah's world seems to be coming apart at its themes. And in all the chaos around him, God opens his eyes. As we read, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. Now, we need to be careful. Sometimes we state, God showed up. We need to be careful. And I understand the meaning of that. I'm not criticizing anyone who, who says that, but often we'll say, God really showed up. Let me tell you this. God doesn't need to show up. He's here. He was, he is, he is to come. We are in his presence. Oh, that we would have the vision of Isaiah to see it. Oh, that we would have the perspective of Caleb and Joshua. We need the eyes of Elisha, the vision of Isaiah. The whole earth is full of his glory. Chaos all over the world, irreverent and immoral world leaders, cruel regimes, greedy despots, godless ideologies. I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. 
Recessions, rising taxes, poor harvests, layoffs, final exams, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Divorce, rebellious children, abusive parents, bullies. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Sickness and disease, depression and anxiety, addictions, guilt, insecurity, the whole earth is full of his glory. One of my favorite passages was also written by Isaiah. It's found in Isaiah chapter 40. Starts at verse 28. The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. And his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youth grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. Those who hope in the Lord, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up, they will soar on wings like eagles, they will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. So in conclusion, I do not know what you may be facing today. Perhaps it's those big, big things such as your health or the health of a loved one or a job loss or family struggles, maybe financial situations or debt or a situation at school. Be strong and courageous. Or perhaps we need courage for the day-to-day, -day, like being honest with a spouse, telling your kids that you love them, asking for forgiveness, standing up for what's right, speaking the truth, giving someone a compliment, or confronting temptation. Be strong and courageous. Or perhaps there's a business opportunity or a job opportunity a chance to further your education, to serve in ministry, or to help a friend or a loved one. Be strong and courageous. Or perhaps you are here today and you have not heard about this message of hope. You have not heard about God's promises for you. But there's something that intrigues you about this God, the God of the universe who promises good. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're considering following Jesus. Be strong and courageous. I'd like for us to close in prayer. And I'd like to, for us to pray this together. And I'll get us to stand, if you don't mind.
and the prayer will be up on the screen. So let us pray. Everlasting God, creator of the universe, God of Abraham, Joshua, Elisha, and Isaiah, move in our hearts and our minds that we may capture a new vision of you. Breathe on us your spirit of power and love, that we may be daughters and sons, emboldened by your strength, filled with your courage. Lead us, O King. Amen. You're dismissed.